turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8, or 7, excuse me, Exodus chapter 7. Not quite into chapter 8 yet, that'll be next week. Uh, but Exodus chapter 7, so glad that you're here tonight, looking forward to uh, what the Lord has for us from His Word. I pray that it'll be a blessing, a challenge, and an encouragement to us. We're now entering the section of Exodus in chapters 7 through 13 that details the 10 plagues as we've come to know them. The Hebrew word translated plague actually means a strike or a blow, which is how the word plague was used in the uh, 15th and 16th century around the time that our English Bible was translated. And so that's why we often call them the plagues. It talks about the plagues. But the idea is that there are 10 strikes that God is going to blow against Pharaoh and against Egypt. You know, we have a three strikes and you're out rule in baseball. God gave Egypt 10 strikes. That's his grace. But they never turned to him. In terms of the flow and theological nature of this section, it really functions as one unified uh, theme that's designed to showcase uh, God's supreme and sovereign power over Pharaoh, over Egypt, and over the gods of Egypt. It's to display himself as the one true and living God. His clearly stated mission is that Pharaoh, the Egyptians, Israel, and all the nations would know that he is, I am. That he is the Lord, Jehovah. It's intended to show us that God has everything it takes to redeem us, to destroy our greatest enemy, and to bring us out in victory, to save us from destruction. That's really the purpose of these accounts here over the next few chapters. Uh, if we preached through all of them in one message, we'd be here all night. And so I'm going to spare you of that, but I want you to know ahead of time, that's really what the theme of this entire section is, to display God's glory, his sufficiency, and his sovereignty over everything. His power over Satan, his power over Egyptian gods, his power over Pharaoh, his power over the Egyptians, his power over nature is to demonstrate who he is so that all the world would know that he is a God who can save. That's what it's about. But again, if we preached through them, we'd be here all night, but we also would miss some very identifiable realities, things we can identify with. And valuable truths that will help us grow as Christians. And so the approach that we're going to take here over the next few chapters, we're not going to take each plague one by one. We're kind of almost going to go chapter by chapter. There might be times when we uh, break it up, but the goal is to go chapter by chapter. And it's really for us to understand this, that while we are going to have some serious disdain for Pharaoh by the end of this series, we're also going to realize that we have very serious uh, tendencies to manifest the same character traits as Pharaoh because we are all fallen. And they are all fallen character traits that can be redeemed by Jesus Christ. And so that's really the approach that we're going to take here through this section of scripture. So if you're in Exodus chapter seven, if you'll stand together, we'll read our text beginning in verse eight through the close of chapter eight. 
Exodus chapter 7, verse number 8. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, um, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. Now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goeth out unto the water. And thou shalt stand by the river's brink, against he come. And the rod, which was turned into a serpent, shalt thou take in thine hand. And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear. Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying unto, uh, saying, uh, and the Lord spake unto Moses, say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and, there, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither did he set his heart to this also. And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river, and seven days were fulfilled after that the Lord had smitten the river. So I mentioned the focus here is going to shift from Moses and Aaron and Israel really to Pharaoh. And so what we're going to be doing is focusing on Pharaoh's part in these different plagues and his responses and the hardening of his heart. And we're just really going to highlight what's going on inside of him so that we can see, you know what, we don't fall far from him. 
and we need God's help. And so the title of our message tonight is this, Unconvincing Evidence for the Hard Heart. Unconvincing Evidence for the Hard Heart. May God bless reading of his word. You can be seated, and we'll see what this means. Before we make an important <clears throat> decision, we like to have concrete evidence that we are making the right decision. We want to know. We want to be able to see. We want to have that, that direct and concrete evidence. This is the right thing to do. Imagine with me that you are in a court of law, that you have been uh, selected for jury duty, and this particular court case is a murder trial. And so you're sitting up there in the jury, and the prosecutor comes, and they are prosecuting the specific defendant, charging him for the murder of this innocent individual. And so this prosecutor is going to develop their, their case. They're going to build a case based off evidence that's designed to convince you to bring this man to conviction. But some of that evidence is going to be circumstantial evidence. It's going to be something like, we found a fingerprint at the restaurant. Okay, so he was there. So were a hundred other people. What difference does that make? So you placed him there. It's circumstantial. It's not enough to convince and so the prosecutor might call somebody to the stand and they're questioning them and they ask them uh, what they saw that night. And they said, yes, I saw this man there at the restaurant. And then they say something like this. And I heard the people next to me say that they followed them out into the alley while the defense attorney is going to stand up and just say, objection, your honor, hearsay. <laughs> That means that that person didn't actually see it with their eyes. They just overheard somebody else saying that they saw it. And so they're going to object to that. And it's going to be thrown out. Why? Because it's not enough to convince. It's not enough to convict the guilty party. But if that prosecutor comes in with a TV and on this TV is security footage from a camera in the back alley and it places that individual in that location with a gun in his hand, pulling the trigger, that's direct evidence. That's concrete. That's enough to bring a conviction to where now you on the jury is going to be convinced, yes, this man committed this crime so we can make the right decision here that he is guilty. Direct Concrete evidence helps us make the right decision. It convinces us that the decision is right. Sometimes we want direct, concrete evidence that obeying God is the right decision. Uh, we want to know that, that this is the right decision to make, to believe God, to obey God, and we want to know by having some kind of concrete evidence. You know, the world of skepticism out there that, that they, they like the idea of Jesus. There are parts of the Bible that they can agree with and, and level with value and appreciate. But a lot of times uh, they demand to see concrete, direct evidence. And they say that if there's enough evidence, then they'll believe. That's the world of skepticism out there. But I'd also say this, that the famous words of a skeptical believer are this. Where's that in the Bible? 
You ever heard somebody say that before? That a, 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 a skeptical believer will come and they'll say, show me that verse. You know, that, that while that sounds spiritual, here's really what they're saying. Unless the Bible says, thou shalt not smoke weed, I'm going to smoke weed. <laughs> Unless the Bible says, thou shalt not chew tobacco, I'm going to choose chew tobacco. Unless the Bible very clearly and plainly says, look not on the wine when it is red, I'm going to drink alcohol. Oh, wait. It does say that, doesn't it? It's okay. As long as you close your eyes, you can, you know. But there are still some out there, skeptical as they can be, say, show me in the Bible. Again, that sounds super spiritual, but they're saying things like, "Thou, if, if the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt go to church Sunday morning and Sunday night and Thursday night, then I'm not going to go on Thursday nights. I'm only going to go on Sundays. There are some that say, if the New Testament doesn't specifically say, thou shalt give 10% of your income, then I will not tithe. Show me in the Bible. I want the direct evidence. Well, the reality is this. The Bible speaks to every area of our lives. Maybe not explicitly, but it does implicitly. That the Bible gives us principles that make specific implications on our lives. It's taken for granted in the New Testament that you're going to tithe. They just came on the first day of the week instead of the seventh day of the week to give their offerings, just like they always did before. Why? Because tithe is not about law. Tithe is about worship. It predates the law. And so there are certain things that the Bible will not speak to explicitly, but it will speak to implicitly. But yet there are still some who will say, unless it is explicitly spelled out in the Bible, I'm not going to do it. Show me the proof. Sometimes as believers, we want concrete evidence before we obey God's will. That I, I want to see God come through and then I'll give to missions. I, I need some sign from God and then I'll believe he's calling me to ministry. I want to see him work some things out. I want to see him put things together. I and mean, we have examples all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, speaking of the, the uh, judge Gideon, God calls him to be a judge over the people of Israel and to lead them out of the hands of the Midianites. And, and he says, okay, God, I, I need you to prove it to me. I need a sign. I'm a scaredy cat. You're calling me a mighty man of valor. I know that's not true. And so I'm going to put my fleece out there, my wool fleece, and I want there to be dew on the ground, but not on the fleece. And God does it. But he's still not convinced. He says, okay, this time, that, that's easier. This time I want you to put dew on the fleece, but not on the ground. And God does it again. And it actually convinces him to go. But that's not always the case. That when a lot of times we have this tendency to demand concrete proof or evidence prior to obedience. And Pharaoh was no different. Pharaoh claimed no knowledge of God in chapter 5 when he's first introduced to who this Jehovah is. And thus he would not obey God and let Israel go. When Moses and Aaron return to him in this chapter, he's going to demand some kind of miracle. Prove to me that your God exists. Prove to me his power is greater than mine. Give me the proof. Give me the evidence. Make it concrete and direct. And then maybe I'll obey God. Well, God gives him exactly what he asks for. Yet it did nothing to convince him to believe and obey 
God. We all have this tendency to demand evidence before we believe and obey God, but understand evidence does not guarantee belief and obedience. It didn't for Pharaoh, it didn't for Israel, and it won't do it for you either. Why is that? Tonight in our message, I want to focus, first of all, on why evidence alone cannot convince us to believe and obey God. But then I want you to, I want you to see what we should do in response to that reality. But I also, again, as we come to each message this section, I want us to focus on this how Christ can redeem this fallen state that we're in. And so let's consider, first of all, why can't evidence convince us to obey God? The first reason is this. Evidence can always be explained away. Evidence can always be explained away. Would you look with me at verse 8? And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, when, Moses, or when Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. What happens is the evidence that God provides a Pharaoh is in, ends up being explained away by his magicians. And what happens here is that God comes to Moses and Aaron and he tells them, when you go and stand before Pharaoh, he's going to demand a miracle from you, a sign, a wonder. Why? He's not acquainted with this God. He doesn't know who God is. And thus he's not going to obey God unless he knows who God is. So he's going to ask for this miracle. And God tells him when he asks you for this miracle, I want you to take the rod in your hand and I want you to cast it down before him and it's going to become a serpent. And so that's exactly what they do. Moses and Aaron, they come and they stand before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, show me a miracle for you. Prove to me that your God exists. Prove to me that your God is powerful. Show me the evidence. Aaron takes his rod and he throws it down and poof, this rod becomes a snake. Snakes were uh, symbols of the gods and the goddesses there in Egypt. Pharaoh's headdress was like a cobra. They had a, a deep fascination with cobras. They believed that snakes represented the power of God. And so they see this come down and they want proof that he's, uh, that he's God. And so he casts this rod down. It becomes a snake. That would demonstrate to them, okay, okay, so they do have a God. This God is real. But then what Pharaoh does is instead of, instead of just uh, believing and obeying God, he calls his sorcerers and his wise men together. And these guys group together, make up what are called the magicians. And the magicians in Egypt would have functioned in a priestly role on behalf of the Egyptian gods. That they were like Moses and Aaron were to Jehovah, they were to their gods. And so it doesn't tell us how many there are, but there are several, evidently more than Moses and Aaron. And these guys come in and now they've got their rods and we've got a face-off going on. And they throw down their rods and all of their rods become snakes as well. They're able to duplicate the exact miracle that Moses and Aaron duplicate, or did on behalf of God. The question that comes to us is this, how? Why, why were they able to perform this miracle? I mean, are they like modern magicians? Is this an illusion? 
Is this a, is some kind of trick? Is this a snake charming, which the Egyptians were famous for? I mean, what is going on here? Well, it's important for us to understand that the Bible reveals pagan gods to be devils, to be evil spirits, demonic foes driven by the power of Satan. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 says this, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 16 and 17, when Israel was worshiping the golden calves, Deuteronomy 32 is rehashing that. And it says this, they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods with abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God. What this is telling us is this. All of those Egyptian gods were in fact beings, but they weren't gods. They were demons. Demons who were disguised as gods, who were operating under the power of Satan. And evidently that power was great. It was great. But the, what I want to point out here is this. When Pharaoh was in there alone and they cast down their rod and their rod became a serpent, he got exactly what he was asking for. He received the evidence. He received the proof. But it wasn't good enough for him. And so he called in his magicians and then they do the very same thing. And now that you got all these snakes here on the ground, Pharaoh's thinking, <laughs> I told you, that makes no difference to me. That's not good enough. That's not convincing enough. My, my guys could do it as well. My gods could do it as well. And so what you see is happening here is that he has demanded the proof. The proof has been given, but the proof has not convinced him. Rather, it's been explained away by the fact his magicians could do the very same thing. God is not providing Pharaoh with hearsay. He's not providing Pharaoh with circumstantial evidence. He's providing him with direct, concrete evidence that would convince him that he is God. But instead of being convinced that God, uh, of God's reality, he just explains it away. See, the most concrete evidence will be explained away by those who resist God. Now, we all know that you can present archaeological facts about the Bible, and yet there's always some alternative explanation as to how this happened. You can uh, stack up the idea of evolution against the second law of thermodynamics, that everything tends to disorder and decomposition, and you could scientifically observe that. <laughs> Our bodies decompose, vehicles wear out. Homes break down, structures break down, TVs wear out. We can look all around us and observe the very scientific fact that nothing naturally improves on its own. And yet when you bring such a compelling argument to a proponent of evolution, there's always some kind of explanation that they are going to give you. It's not good enough. To them, it's circumstantial evidence. It's hearsay. It's myth. It's legend. And so they don't really care about what you're going to bring to the table. There's always going to be an explanation for it. But you might be a believer who says this. If you give me a sign, then God, I'll do this. 
If you give me evidence that it's all going to work out, that I'll do what you want me to do. I'll take this next step in my life. I'll take this next step in my Christian discipleship. I'll start sharing the gospel with people if you take care of this in my life. I'll give to missions if you take care of my financial problems. I'll do whatever you want me to do if you give me the proof that you're going to come through. But there's no guarantee that if God does, you'll believe and obey. Someone can always come up with an excuse. Someone can always come up with an explanation as to why they can't or why they won't or why they shouldn't. Some may object and they may say, but look at Israel. The evidence convinced them they cast down, he cast down the serpent in front of them and they believed and they worshiped God, right? Uh, really? Then why are they in despair at this time? Why are they so discouraged? Why do they grumble and complain and doubt their way through the wilderness after they have seen God bring these plagues, part the Red Sea, provide manna from heaven, water out of a rock? Uh, why do they continue to doubt and question and debate with God and complain about God if it's really convinced them? Well, the Apostle Paul actually gives us a little bit of insight. He says this, in their hearts, they turn back to Egypt. That brings us to our next point. Evidence is not the real problem. The heart is the real problem. The problem for Pharaoh was not the evidence. It was his heart. Would you look with me at verse number 11? Or verse 12, excuse me. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But watch this. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. <laughs> How awesome would this be? So now you've got this going on. Aaron has cast down his rod. It has become a snake. Now they have cast down their rods, and now you've got this uh, multitude of snakes down here, and Pharaoh's looking at Moses, and he's like, see, it's no different. In fact, we had more. Ours is better. And his guys are tapping him on the shoulder. And he's like, no, hold on a second. So why don't you just go ahead and get, no, Pharaoh, Fa what? His rod just ate our rods. His snake just ate our snakes. You know what that is? A demonstration that, hey, their power might be similar to God's power, but it's always going to be inferior to God's power that God overrules, that God overpowers, that God is of greater strength because he didn't just eat one snake, he ate a bunch of snakes, this serpent did. See, sometimes it can feel like Satan's power is greater than God's power, especially as we look at the world around us and we see the way the world is dominated by sin, by evil, by violence. You look at, at worldwide religions and false religions and, and, and idols dominate the mass majority of the world. And you just think, why does it seem that Satan has all this power if God is infinitely more powerful than him? Why is this? But we are reminded that a day is coming when Jesus Christ is going to return. And while Satan wields a significant amount of power right now, his power will be no match for Christ's power. Christ will crush his head. He will bind him for a thousand years. Satan will come back and manifest his power in the world after a thousand years. 
years, and he'll persuade many to turn against Jesus, but ultimately with the word of his mouth, Jesus is going to destroy all evil, all sin, all violence, and he's going to cast Satan and his demons and death and even hell itself into the lake of fire and have the final triumph. And so while it might be tempting to be a little discouraged by how much influence and power Satan has in our world, let's remember who the ultimate uh, triumph will belong to, and that is God. Because Pharaoh's power and Satan's power and man's power is no match for God. But notice what this does to Pharaoh. Look at verse number 12 or 13 and he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said see God has given Pharaoh the evidence that Pharaoh asked for yet Pharaoh still refused to believe and the reason why is not because there was not enough evidence is because his heart was hardened in other words Pharaoh didn't have an evidence problem Pharaoh had a heart problem now why does Pharaoh have this heart problem well here it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart But we've got to remember the infinite foreknowledge of God. Because the fact of the matter is that in Exodus chapter uh, 3 and verse 19, God said this, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. You know what God is saying there? That Pharaoh will not let them go, not now, not after the plagues, not ever, and there's nothing that would change his heart. Nothing would. That's demonstrated by this fact. After the plagues are completed, after the death of the firstborn, Israel heads toward the Red Sea, and they're encamped against the Red Sea. And it says in chapter 14 and verse 5 that Pharaoh decided of his own, without the hardening of his heart by God, that he was going, that he made a mistake that he was going to pursue after the Israelites, that he was going to overrun them. He was going to uh, wound them up and bring them back to Egypt. You know what that tells us? Even after he let them go, he was still never going to let them go. And God already knew that. He said, not by a mighty hand. He said, I'm going I'm to harden his heart and I'm going to show him my mighty hand, but he's still not going to let them go. God knew the only way to free Israel completely was to destroy their greatest enemy. And thus, when Pharaoh came to the Red Sea, Israel's encamped down here. They're surrounded by mountains. There's only one way in and out of this section. And the the fiery pillar of God comes down to separate between the Egyptian army, which they say was probably about 50,000 horsemen and chariots. I mean, we're talking about a massive army, 50,000 to wind up about two and a half million. Okay, and so they needed a lot. In fact, some say, including all the soldiers and everything, it may have been 250,000. Either way, they are there with the full force of Egypt, ready to take Israel back into bondage, 
But God steps in and he puts up this pillar of fire. And at that time, it says that as Israel crosses the Red Sea, God hardens Pharaoh's heart again. So much so that instead of going back to Egypt, Pharaoh goes into the sea and God closes the sea on them and drowns them. People say, that's cruel. Why would God do that? Why would God destroy that army? Because God already knew this. There is nothing that is going to change Pharaoh's obstinate, stubborn heart. Nothing's going to change it. And so the only way to free them is to destroy him. But understand this. God did not harden Pharaoh's heart to condemn Pharaoh for no reason whatsoever. God knew Pharaoh's heart. He knew he would never let them go. And so the hardening, contrary to what some people teach in Christianity today, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart was not causing a man never to believe. It was God using a man who never would believe to facilitate his purpose of redemption, not only for Israel, but for Egyptians and for Canaanites and all the nations of the world. That was his plan. And so God sovereignly chose that because this man, nothing is going to change his heart, that I'm going to do this work of, of working in tandem with him. Sometimes it's Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Sometimes it's the plague hardening Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. He says, I'm going to do this to where he won't uh, pretend to let them go is really what's going on. He knows he's never going to let them go. So I'm going to make it to where he keeps them here so that I can continue to display my wonders so I can continue continue to show the world that I'm more powerful than the gods of Egypt so I can continue to show the world what kind of saving God I am to the nation of Israel. And you know what ends up happening when Israel leaves, they don't go by themselves. There is a mixed multitude of Egyptians and probably Ethiopians and other African nations and others who were enslaved by Egypt. You've got all these nations having seen the power of God that choose to go out with Israel because they see the kind of God that the God of Israel is, a redeeming God, a saving God. And so don't let uh, people confuse you from Romans 9 to lead you to believe that God hardens some people to unbelief and uh, illuminates some people to belief. No, God already knows their heart and God chooses to use those who will never believe to bring about his purpose of redemption. He did it with Israel as well. That's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. That he knew Jesus came and they were not interested whatsoever, the religious leaders, not interested whatsoever in accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And so God blinded them. Jesus taught in parables, knowing they would never believe, to harden their hearts and harden their hearts and harden their hearts to the place where they would execute him. Why? So the atonement could be made for both Israel and all the nations of the world. And Romans 11 goes on to show this, that the nations who will get saved will bring the gospel back to the Israelites so the Israelites can be grafted back in. You know what that means? God didn't look at some Jews and God doesn't look at some Gentiles today and just say, I'm sending you to hell just because I want to. I'm hardening your heart just because I don't want to save you. No, God already knows the heart. 
And he chooses to harden already calloused hearts even further to accomplish his plan of redemption. And that's exactly what he's doing here with Pharaoh. The truth of the matter is this. Pharaoh took the first step. Back in chapter five, before God had hardened his heart, Moses and Aaron came into him and said, the Lord God of Israel has said, let my people go that they may worship me. And he said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He did not believe. He did not obey God. He never would. And God knew he never would. And so now this man is hardened. This man is calloused. And he comes to the place where he says, show me a miracle. Give me the proof. Give me the evidence. But because his heart and his mind was already made up, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to obey. When the evidence was thrown right in front of him and when his snake swallowed up all of their snakes and he had everything right before him, it still did not convince him. Why? Because his heart was hard toward God. It was hard. It reminds me of the story of an atheist who asked, what will you say, or somebody asked this atheist, what will you say if you turn out to be wrong and you stand face to face before God in judgment? What do you say? Thought about it for a moment. And then he said, here's what I would say. Not enough evidence, Lord. Not enough evidence. And he's suggesting that the problem with why he could not believe is that God did not give him enough evidence when the reality is this, even if God gave him more evidence than he already has, because his heart and his mind is already made up, all the evidence in the world would not bring him to belief. And Pharaoh is living proof that evidence will not convince you if you already resist God's word. See, the real problem is not with evidence. The real problem is with the heart. Because as we talked about on Sunday, that our real problem is just like the disciples were uh, blinded to Jesus' crucifixion, that they had already rejected it, (laughs) that we have this natural blindness and we have this satanic blindness and we're blinded by our own rejection of the truth and we can be blinded by our own uh, ignorance. The reality is the same way that, that by nature we have this spiritual blindness, by nature we have this hardness of heart. We have this rebel inside of us that says, I don't want to obey God, that, that resists God's word that says, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I don't want God to be real because if God's real, I'm accountable to him. And it means the Bible is true. And there's only one way to heaven and that's through Jesus Christ. And if I don't accept God's way, then I'm condemned to eternity in hell. That's a message I just don't want to believe. That is our natural hardened condition. Just like Pharaoh's. He was hardened and we are hardened. And in our hardened state, when we are confronted with the word of God and we are confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if in our hardened state, we resist that truth, we deny it. 
we fail to accept it. If in the moment when God comes to speak to our heart through his Holy Spirit to call us to do something or to command us to take a specific step and we resist God, it doesn't matter how much evidence or how many signs God brings into your life, your heart will become more and more hardened the more you reject what he says. Our problem is this. Fundamentally, our heart is rebellious toward God. And so the reality is evidence doesn't guarantee to convince us to believe because it can be explained away. And it's because it's not the real problem. The real problem is our heart inside of us. Our heart is prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Our problem is an evil heart that resists God. And so evidence can't convince us. There's a third reason here. And that's this. Evidence further hardens the heart of those who won't believe. It further hardens the heart of those who refuse to believe. What happens in the rest of the chapter is that more evidence did not stop the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Would you look with me at verse 14? And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goeth out unto the water, and thou shalt stand by the river's brink against he come, and the rod which was turned to a serpent shalt thou take in thine hand, and thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldest not hear. Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood, and the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water. So that wasn't enough evidence to convince Pharaoh. So now God is going to send another sign another plague, another strike, another blow to show him, I am Jehovah. I am still is. I am the Lord. And so Pharaoh or Moses and Aaron, they go and they stand before Pharaoh as Pharaoh is going out by the water and they tell him, God has said to let my people go. And Pharaoh will not hear. Pharaoh refuses. And so Aaron uh, or Moses now this time, he takes the rod that was in Aaron's hand and he stretches it out over the river and he smites the river. And immediately the river changes into blood. The word turns literally means to change into blood. It means to change structure, to change form, because some have tried to explain this away by natural phenomenon or by the, the red soil dirt there, just discoloring it. But the fact of the matter is, is all he did was strike the river. And yet it's going to say their ponds and their pools and their vessels of wood and their vessels of stone. And throughout all the land of Egypt, it was all covered with Blood, that's all it was. Blood throughout the land. And just like God said, the fish died, the river stank, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. So now God brings another sign. We gotta understand this. 
The Nile River was the lifeblood of Egypt. It was their sustenance. It was everything to them. It it watered their agriculture. It's where they got their drinking water from. In fact, it it was such an important part of their culture that they worshiped the Nile River as part of three gods who took care of them and sustained them. And so this was very important to them. So you would think that something like this, where it's like he struck the river, but the pool over there has blood in it. He struck the river, but this little vase over here has blood in it. You would think this is, I mean, let's say this is far more evidence than a rod turning into a serpent. And you would think this would be enough to convince a man if he really wants to know the truth. And yet, what does he do? Magicians, come over here. They dig out of a well by by the river, and apparently it wasn't afflicted. And so they pull out some of this well, and maybe they've got it in, in pots or something like that. And they take their rods and, and they strike their water and their water turns to blood too. And notice Pharaoh's response in verse 22. It says, and the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. This time it doesn't say God hardened his heart. It says his heart was hardened. How? By the plague, by the evidence itself, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it says, neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord has said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. And now the Egyptians are forced to dig wells around the river for seven days. This continued. God gave Pharaoh more evidence, but instead Pharaoh's heart just got harder. And here's what happened. The more evidence Pharaoh received, the more calloused he became. How was a callous formed? Repeated pressure on a specific area of skin. And so you got a shovel, you know, working man, you got a shovel and it's the constant twisting and moving of that hand right upon the handle of that shovel. And that constant friction continues to build against, and it causes that skin to harden and harden and harden so much so that you remember when you were a kid and you would take a little pin needle and stick your, stick the needle through that localis. Didn't feel a thing. Didn't make a difference. Didn't hurt you at all. Pharaoh got more evidence and you would think the evidence would be able to convince and skeptics think the evidence will convince and believers think the word will, the the, the specific explicit instruction will convince and they think that the sign will convince me to do what God wants me to do. And yet what we're seeing here in Pharaoh's heart is that the more evidence that's applied to your life to try to convince you of the truth, it just is friction that calluses you and makes you harder and harder and harder so that when you open your Bible and you read it or when a preacher preaches it or when a a, a, a a church member is trying to share the gospel with you that it, you're so hard and you're so callous that the message is going right through your eyes and right through your heart without pricking you at all without causing any sting without bringing any conviction and the reason why is because you have refused to accept God's word as it is 
your demand for more evidence has actually calloused you even further. Because here's what you notice with Pharaoh three times in this chapter. After the serpent, he would not hear. God told Moses, Pharaoh will not hear. And after the blood, he would not hear. The reality is this, God sent Moses and Aaron every single time first to speak. He says, no, I need a miracle. I need a sign. I need proof. And it was his refusal to hear initially that led to the evidence callousing him to where his heart became hard and he would not believe. And so thus evidence does not convince Evidence further hardens the heart of those who refuse to believe. Some people think, if I just have more evidence, I'll believe and obey. But that in and of itself proves the reality that your heart is already resisting God. That if you can't just take God's, God's word as its plain and simple form of what God wants you to do, that resistance combined with the evidence causes friction that hardens you further. Evidence doesn't have the power we tend to think it does, does it? And so rather than demanding evidence... What should Pharaoh have done in the first place? He should have believed and he should have obeyed God when they first appeared to him. Why? Because he would not believe by evidence what he would not receive by faith. He would not believe by evidence what he would not receive by faith. See, when a person will not receive God's word, he will not believe the evidence. This is proven for us when Jesus, as we saw back in Luke chapter 16, he gives the account of the rich man and Lazarus, that the rich man dies and he lifts up his eyes in hell and he's in torments and he begins to have a conversation with Abraham who is in the Old Testament version of heaven. And he says, would you send Lazarus, that beggar, would you send Lazarus back to tell my brothers so that they will believe and not come to this place and be in torments with me. And what did Abraham say? If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe, though one returned from the dead. That means if somebody, if somebody can hold the word of God in their hand and God's Holy Spirit does his convicting work in their lives, and yet they won't believe it. That means even if somebody came back from the dead and told them what it was like, they would not believe. God has placed the power of conviction in his word, and those who resist his word cannot be convinced by evidence. And so what should we do? Just believe and obey. Believe and obey. Why? Because you'll not believe by evidence 
what you won't receive by faith. But what about our heart? What about this heart that naturally resists God and his word? What, what hope do I have to believe the gospel? What hope do I have to simply do what God is telling me to do? What can be done about this rebellious heart of mine? Well, what can you do if your heart is failing? If a bypass won't work, open heart surgery won't work, stents won't work, what can you do? Your only hope is to have a heart transplant. Your only hope is to be given a different heart, a completely different heart. That's why Jesus came. See, Jesus died on the cross because at heart we are like Pharaoh, resistant to God, rebellious against God, opposed to God. We refuse to obey God. Even Israel refused to believe and obey God after all the evidence and all the signs that they have. They lived in rebellion against God. They killed his prophets. Uh, their refusal to accept who Jesus came to be, uh, claimed to be, so hardened their hearts to the point where they had him executed. But God promised that when Israel eventually comes to accept Jesus as Messiah, that he would change their hearts, that he would remove the heart of stone and would give them a heart of flesh and they would become a people who would believe God, a people who would obey God, a people who would bring their lives into submission to God. Why? Because Jesus would change their heart when they believed. That's a future promise to all Israel. But that's a promise guaranteed to you and me today. Because Jesus did come and he did die on the cross. He did pay the price for our sin. He did offer the atonement once for all that is sufficient for us to be forgiven and to have eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. He died to redeem us from this fallen condition, to take our hardened heart of stone and to exchange it for a heart of flesh, one that would be soft, one that could uh, follow God, one who could obey God, one that would be submissive to God. Our hardness can be overcome by Jesus Christ if we will simply repent of our sin, place our faith in him, and call on him to be our savior. He, his power is more powerful than Satan's. I just think it's phenomenal how we had the message on Sunday talking about our spiritual blindness and tonight we're talking about our spiritual hardness and yet what we see in both is that Jesus Christ has the power to overcome them both to save our souls and transform our lives into his disciples if you've already accepted Christ as your savior the only way for your heart to become hardened is if you resist God's word and the work of his Holy Spirit. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. How? By looking at God's word and when God convicts you and you saying, I don't see it. Or you say, where's that in the Bible? 
Or you say, if God does this, then I'll do this. No, if you won't accept who God is and what he's telling you to do through his word or by his spirit, there's no evidence in the world that will convince you. And in fact, the evidence will only continue to callous you and make you harder and harder and harder to God's word and God's will. But thank God that heart of stone is already a heart of flesh and it can never go back all the way to a heart of stone. And when we see God's word and we believe it and we repent and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel can tenderize your heart once again and bring you to a place of belief and obedience. And so rather than resisting, I just love this thing. <laughs> so what's the takeaway here? Rather than resisting God's word, just believe and obey God's word. When God's word says tithe, tithe. But it's not New Testament. It's taken for granted in the New Testament. It's all through the Old Testament. It's before the law. It's what the Bible says. Just believe it and obey it. If the Bible says quit cold turkey, if the Bible says look not on the wine when it's red, that means don't have it in your glass, don't have it in your house, don't have it in your mouth. <laughs> don't let alcohol be a part of your life. But I don't, I don't get, I want to see in the Bible where it's, I mean, you see all throughout the Bible that there was, that there was drinking going on. And, and, and yeah, you also see things that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah that was going on, but God didn't sanction that. You also see uh, Jacob having four wives and God doesn't sanction that. Just because the Bible records it doesn't mean it's God's plan, but God has sp spoken explicitly about alcohol and other mind-numbing substances and how they would take things that God created and use them to indulge their flesh. <laughs> so when God says don't drink and God says don't smoke, just believe it and obey it rather than resisting it. When God says, stay pure, stay pure. When God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. If the church is open, be there. Worship, praise, take in the word of God. Whatever God says to do, just do it. It's that simple. Otherwise, demanding the sign, demanding the proof will just callous your heart. So believe and obey God because you won't believe by evidence what you won't receive by faith. Be convinced by who God is and what he has said and that will be enough. Lord, we come to you tonight grateful for your word, grateful for Jesus that he has the power to overcome our sinful flesh, our hardened hearts, that he has the power to redeem our fallen condition. And my prayer tonight is if there's anybody who has not yet accepted Christ as their savior, that if they're demanding further evidence, I pray they would stop demanding evidence and just accept your word as true believing you'll make sense of it all in the end. And I'm confident that you will. And I pray that if your people are struggling with this very thought tonight, 
rather than just receiving your word by faith. They're demanding proof, signs, evidence that we would simply trust and obey. And I pray that repentance and grace can be found at the foot of Jesus. And so would you please bless in our time of invitation, speak to hearts, help us to respond. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.